Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome to the June edition of Space Boffins in partnership with The Naked Scientists. I'm Richard Hollingham. And I'm Sue Nelson. And this time we discuss the horrors of Splashdown with Apollo 8 astronaut Frank Borman. Learn how to spacewalk underwater. Well, not really, but... You'll get it with astronaut Kathy Sullivan and find out about a new mission to capture space debris. Our guest is broadcaster, podcaster, musician and children's TV legend, Gareth Jones. And I, I should say that legend, my existence is verifiable and well documented. Hello, people. <laughs> and I should say space fan. Very much a space fan, yeah, yeah, born and bred right from uh, year zero. I, I remember hearing about the space race when I was six years old in 1967, and I have followed it religiously, not that I'm a religious man, ever since. I was going to say, you don't look it, but actually with your hair under lockdown, you slightly do. <laughs> I think we all do, Richard, actually. I really don't think you should be throwing stones there, considering I cut Richard's hair. <laughs> I've, got, I've, got my eight, I've got my eight floppy eighties spandar ballet hair back. Yeah, it's not a good it's look. It's good. It's a good look, yeah. It's a, it wouldn't work in zero G, though, would it? It would just be, a, it'd be like Judy Resnick's big hair. She had, but Judy Resnick had she's massive She's got great hair. hair. Yeah, Love she's that. got great hair. We're talking space, obviously, because this is the Space Boffins podcast. How, Gareth, was the Dragon launch for you? It was fabulous. I, uh, I actually quite liked the fact that the first attempt didn't go ahead because you know that thing that jugglers do right i'm gonna juggle with three balls now i'm gonna juggle with four balls i'm gonna juggle with five balls and they get the five things that they throw in the air and they deliberately drop one to make it look even harder than it actually is which is pretty hard i can't juggle with three things and we all know that the whole process of putting people into space is not straightforward it's not simple and so you know, you rely on all the, um, everything coming into alignment, you know, and not just the engineering that you've taken care of, but the unpredictable stuff like the, the chaotic weather system. And so that first attempt at the launch, which I, I kind of, something at the back of my head told me that it wasn't going to go ahead because Bob and Doug looked really relaxed, a bit too relaxed, almost as if someone said to him, well, the weather ain't looking so good, guys, so we're going to go through as far as we can with this, but we'll, we'll probably pull in about team minus 16 minutes, you know, almost as if they knew. But, you know, it was a great rehearsal, darlings. That was a wonderful rehearsal. We'll go for the proper launch as soon as the weather clears. And, yeah, and when the real launch happened, wow. I, I also liked, I, I also, sorry to interrupt, I also liked the fact that it was a rehearsal because we sort of could then know what was going on for the, for the real thing. Because there were lots yeah, of well, things that were slightly different from the shuttle and from Apollo and from, from other spacecraft. And the fact they're refueling this rocket right up to launch is incredible. I was just about to say that, you know, but if you think about it, in the Apollo days, they used to put three people onto a fully loaded rocket. I mean, that was a, a, a wild and crazy thing to do. And SpaceX turned that on, on its head and decided to put the guys in, 
Then we'll put the fuel in, then we'll let them go. You know, yeah, we've had lots of practice over the years. We've seen countless shuttle launches. We've seen those of us of a certain age old enough to remember uh, Gemini and Apollo launches. And uh, yeah, we, we have, and we've seen Zoya's launches. We have expectations of how it works. But SpaceX, with humans on board, we're venturing into the unknown. And that makes it more exciting than it has been for quite a while. Well, let's, let's relive that launch. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Ignition. Liftoff of the Falcon 9 and Crew Dragon. Go NASA. Go SpaceX. Godspeed. Bob and Doug. America has launched. And so rises a new era of American spaceflight. And with it, the ambitions of a new generation continuing the dream. So astronauts Doug Hurley and Bob Benkin making history on May the 30th. Uh, It's looking like they're going to spend a couple of months on the space station now, but eventually they will have to return to Earth. And that's in a way that's not been seen since the last Apollo mission in July 1975, a splashdown in the ocean. So what's that going to be like I spoke to an astronaut who made the ultimate splashdown after returning from the moon. Frank Borman was the commander of Apollo 8, along with Jim Lovell and Bill Anders. He was the first to orbit the moon in December 1968. I interviewed him in 2018, uh, but I've been saving this bit of the interview until now. This is going to be a real ride. Hang on. I've never seen a desk ride before. Got a 5G yet? 102. Standby, 38, 39, 40. 05G. 05G. Okay, we got it. EMS, hang on. 05G, switch on. 05G, roll on EMS. Right. We were going faster, around 25,000 miles an hour. And uh, we positioned the the spacecraft uh, according to the way we had had been trained. And what happened, uh, the spacecraft dug into the atmosphere... It had lift, even though it had no wings. And then in order to, uh, when it came to the maximum G and thermal load, it started back out again. And then before you escaped the atmosphere, you rolled over 180 degrees and then came back in. Typically, when you're going around the Earth, you fire a retro rocket to slow down. Here we use the atmosphere to slow us down. So it was a, uh, from, the stand- from a physical standpoint, is the most arduous part of the mission because you're pulling... Six Gs for quite a long time. It gets hard to breathe. Uh, and uh, it was, uh, you know, I'd like to tell you that it was superior piloting on my part, but it was all done on the autopilot. <laughs> Do you still recall that, 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 what that was like coming back into Earth? I do recall it because uh, not only are you pulling a lot of Gs, but when you uh, encounter the atmosphere, you ionize it, and it's a, it was like flying inside of a, of a neon light or a blowtorch, it was uh, it was the uh, the most dramatic part of the flight. Ken Mattingly puts in a, another call, and there's Jim Lovell. We're real good shape, real fine. And you descend then on parachutes. What's it like when you hit the ocean, and and immediately afterwards? I think around 100,000 feet, you, you pull out, or 30,000 feet, I can't remember exactly, you put a drogue chute. That helps us keep you from oscillating. And then around 10,000 feet, three big parachutes came out. We were, we were landing before sunrise, so it was hard for us to, uh, to tell whether they had gone out or not. But uh, the, our speed, our, our rate of descent slowed considerably. And when we hit the water, we did it with an enormous... Uh, Whack. I guess we must have hit a swell. The parachutes tipped us over, so we. by the time I got them released, uh, we were floating upside down in total darkness in the Pacific Ocean, uh, going around and around and up and down. And there were sharks as well, I think. We were floating upside down in perfect darkness. But NASA had a solution for that, too. I pushed the switch. And uh, an air compressor inflated three large balloons, and we popped back right up again. 
but the uh, spacecraft was still a lousy boat, and we had to wait about two hours till daylight because the Navy didn't want to put divers in when there were sharks around. So what was that part like? Because you're, you were not a Navy man. No, and as I said, the, the Apollo was a beautiful spacecraft and a rotten boat because not only were you going like this, but it's going around a little bit too. So I got, I got seasick and threw up all over Anders and Lovell, and I, I still hear about that to the day. What was that like then when you were finally, you finally get to open the uh, spacecraft hatch? I think one of the most uh, joyous parts of anybody's life is doing a job well. And when we stepped off the helicopter onto the aircraft carrier with the uh, sailors cheering and the flag waving, uh, it, was, uh, it was a remarkable feeling of humility, but yet of accomplishment. And is it right that you also shaved on the way from the space capsule to, to the deck? So you looked smart. I did. I, on, our, on our Gemini flight of two weeks, uh, I, I don't have a very good beard, scraggly beard, and I, I took a, a big ribbing for a long time about that. So I got one of the... Uh, one of the helicopter people to put a bring an electric shaver for me. So I stepped off looking fresh. Anders and Lovell looked bedeviled. Apollo 8 Commander Frank Borman. Two hours upside down in the darkness surrounded by sharks. <laughs> what, what I feel ashamed of, though, now is he shaved. He came, went round the moon. He came back and he shaved on the way. I haven't even bothered to shave for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, they can't actually see us. We can only see each other. Luckily, it's probably better that they can't see us. But the, that's the thing. You know, I always remember watching the Apollo splashdown. And as soon as you see those chutes deploy, you think, oh, that's fine. Everything's absolutely fine now. They're home and dry. But far from it, because we heard there how the Apollo 8 command module was inverted in the ocean. That wasn't the only time that happened either. It happened with Apollo 11. That was inverted for a while. Uh, Apollo 15, uh, Endeavour, um, two of the... Well, three, it has three parachutes. One failed to open, so they hit the water at a much greater velocity than they should have have. And that would have been an unpleasant return to Earth. And, you know, your troubles aren't over once you hit the wet stuff. That's the message here. Maybe that's why the uh, the Soviets and, and the Russians after them chose to land on, on dry land. I like the fact that, you know, he's telling the truth He's not sugarcoating it, you know, telling us he threw up everywhere. I mean, let's face it, who wouldn't in that? Yeah. I, I throw up on the Mersey Ferry practically. So it's, it, I completely <laughs> sympathise with him then. But also when you did that interview, which was 2018, he was 90 years old. It, it sounds as fresh, his description, as opposed to with some of them sound really over rehearsed, you know. Yeah, my mother was to say when she was 90, she could recount events that happened when she was a young woman more easily than she could recount stuff that happened last week. You know, these are the key moments in their lives which have been burnt into the, into the uh, cerebellum really hard. Those details are... And they've been reinforced over the years. This is something that he's spoken about for, well, in his case, 40 or 50 years. And... Uh, and he, it's well documented. There, there are images that he will have seen uh, repeatedly. So it's, it's burnt in hard, isn't it? What I would say about Frank Borman is he's not the sort of man you want to mess with. <laughs> Most <laughs> um, of them aren't, no, aren't they? <laughs> he's, I mean, we actually did that interview remotely. So I was in a, a studio in the in the BBC and we had a video connection um, where it sounds like I'm shouting a little bit is because I really was shouting quite a lot because he, he was quite he was quite deaf. Um, but he was actually delightful by the end. He was absolutely fine. Um, and he was just fantastic, fantastic to deal with. But I think if we'd messed him around, I really would not want to be on the wrong side of that of that situation. He described himself, um, it was actually a recording for a programme I made for, for Radio 3. We did the entire interview. It was a programme called Message from the Moon about the, uh, the Apollo 8 uh, mission. And he described himself as a Cold War warrior. 
It was absolutely straight down the line to beat the Soviets. Yeah, well, absolutely. As we know, the uh, race to the moon was indeed the Third World War fought in outer space. And rather than firing rockets at each other, we, we played a game of uh, interplanetary high jump, you know, who could fire rockets higher than any other. And yeah, uh, can you imagine, though, having spent, you know, four, six days in a, a, a can, a steel can with two blokes that you don't particularly get on terribly well with because they're ultra-competitive. Well, they're, they're work cool. colleagues, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and rivals, too, because these are all the topper-most of the topper-most, these guys. You know, these are the overachievers. They have to beat someone else all the time. So there would have been an awful lot of ribbing on board. And then your first sensation when you get back to Earth is... Um, they, they often talk about the Apollo astronauts, they can smell the ocean because the Apollo spacecraft was built uh, to working it in a negative pressure environment where the pressure inside was greater than outside. So that works fine. But you put it in an environment where the air pressure outside is either equal or greater than the vessel that you're in, stuff comes in. You know, the Apollo, he said it, Frank said it, the Apollo spacecraft was a lousy boat. It was an even worse submarine. It wasn't even completely airtight. It was designed to be airtight in a zero pressure environment. You put it in the ocean, it's going to leak. And they can smell the ocean. And imagine that, you know, that swell being thrown around. And, you know, the uh, the stuff in your inner ear, which tells you which way up you are, which hasn't been working for the last eight days because there was no gravity, is now having to deal with extreme movements. And I suffer from vestibulitis occasionally, a condition whereby you, you lose your balance temporarily. And almost I could, I could almost throw up myself most mornings when I wake up and first move my head. So he has my complete sympathy. So what do you think then of, of this return to, to Splashdown, which we're going to see with, with Dragon and then, of course, with SLS and also with the, uh, the Boeing uh, spacecraft? Yeah. I know that the original plan for uh, the Starliner was to put it down on land using uh, airbags, but that's been ditched to save weight. And let's hope that Boeing can write decent software, which allows them to put it in the large blue wet bits of the planet, because their software writing has been a little flawed recently. It's not without hazard. You'd think landing on water was the sensible option. But it nece- not necessarily is. As the, the Soviets found out, Soyuz 23 holds a unique place in uh, Soviet space history in being the only time that a Soyuz capsule actually landed, splashed down rather than landed on the, the steps as the, they normally do with retro rockets. It hit a, a frozen or a semi-frozen uh, lake in Kazakhstan. And it took them 11 hours, because it was in a snowstorm, to get the cosmonauts out of that capsule. Now, in that time, they'd eaten up all their food. They'd used just about all the energy left, the power left in the batteries. They were running out of oxygen. They had to open up the um, pressure equalization valve so that they could breathe to stay alive. And the parachutes were now full of water and had tipped the Zoya's uh, re-entry capsule over to a position where they couldn't open the hatch and get out and it was filling with water and and the uh, i believe the salinity of the water caused the second the you know the backup parachute to fire as well and so that filled with water and now the capsule is going underwater they couldn't get to it they were it was surrounded by bogs it was surrounded by um, uh, you know if you've got hard land you can get to it if you've got water you can get to it you've got something in between it's really hard anyway ultimately they dragged that capsule using a, a, a is it a mil 25 helicopter forgive me a big soviet helicopter physically dragged it across the surface of the lake something which had never been tested never been proven and the um, two cosmonauts on board survived but it was a close run thing so you know yeah maybe landing on land the original question (laughs) is an easier thing to achieve than going the wet stuff and i think you're right i think because you know we are predominantly a water a water-based planet so statistically speaking (laughs) even if it went a bit awol it hopefully would be more likely to land on on water than land but yes it's it's not the soft option, shall we say, it's 
equally got its potential hey, flaws. I've, I've been in um, jet ski accidents before now, where I've come off a jet ski and hit the water at uh, 30 knots or 25 knots, something like that. And water is hard. Anyone who's belly flopped in a swimming pool will tell you. The Space Boffins podcast, as we've mentioned before, is supported by the UK Space Agency. And we've heard a lot over the years about new UK satellites and constellations of satellites. But as more satellites are launched, there's a potential stumbling block, well, sort of stumbling block, probably the wrong analogy, space debris, the tons of pollution we've left in orbit over the past 63 years. Well, now a new mission built by a company called Astroscale has been developed to intercept and remove debris. The first trial satellite, ELSA-D, is due to be launched later this summer and will be controlled from the UK. Astroscale's European head of future business, Jason Forshaw, told me more about the spacecraft and started by explaining why the technology was needed. There's about almost 9,000 tonnes of space debris up there. If you think about, there's about 5,500 satellites in space, and only about 2,300 of those are still functioning. So you can imagine there's a huge number of satellites up there which are dead or defunct. If you think about it, space is really part of our orbital sustainability. So we really do need to keep it clean because it's part of the world's environment. So you've got this mission, ELSA-D, and this sort of builds on other missions that have looked at ways of of removing space debris. So tell me about the new mission. Yeah, so the ELSA-D mission is is quite exciting. We aim to launch a satellite that can go up there and capture some of this debris, or in other words, dead satellites, we'll call them clients. So this servicing vehicle, as it were, will go up there and actually remove some of the clients. And, And what we're doing, we're launching a servicer and a client together and we'll be doing a series of dockings and undockings in space to actually mature the technology needed to actually rendezvous and capture one of these clients. And of course, once so you, you capture... Oh, so, sorry to interrupt, but you're saying remove. But what would it actually do? Yeah, so the LCD mission has a magnetic capture system. So we actually rendezvous and we get close to the client and inspect it. And then once we've actually captured it with our magnetic capture system, which captures a compatible docking plate, we actually bring it back down to lower orbits um, actually burns up in the Earth's environment. So uh, this is effectively a mechanism for cleaning up satellites um, that are defunct in space. The the trouble is with that, you're losing your satellite as well. So you you send up your space debris removal satellite and you're losing that in in dragging your uh, debris down into the atmosphere. Yeah, so this is only a demonstration mission to begin with. But in the UK and other parts of our business, we're looking at whether we can do this in a more efficient way. And we've come up with this uh, multi-client solution, you could call it, in which case you go up, you grab one object, you bring it down and drop it off, and then you go back up and grab another, bring that down, drop it off effectively. So one mission can deal with several different clients. So this is the way we think um, we're going forward in the future, um, commercially anyway. The LCD mission is just a demonstration of these technologies to begin with. So it's almost like a, a waste truck or a bin van in, in orbit, if you like. Yeah, it's exactly like that. Um, if you think about it, um, you can give the analogy of um, a motorway. You can just imagine if you have an accident on the motorway, other cars would have to drive around the accident. And what we're doing in space at the moment is effectively leaving the accident there on the motorway. And all we're doing is proposing actually going up there and removing towing away the vehicle that's had an accident to keep your orbit clean again so it, it really is a like a bin uh, a bin truck or a tow truck analogy how does it work you mentioned the magnetic system but how do you even get close and rendezvous with your space debris from a further distance out, um, you can actually use um, absolute navigation, so GPS and things like that, and sensing from the ground to actually work out where your client is. And then as you get closer, you can switch in to kind of relative sensors. So there's various 
sensors such as cameras and, and in future missions, things like infrared and LIDAR systems. And these will kind of look at the client and, and just look at its position and how it's rotating and things like that. And based on all these, we can calculate how you actually do the rendezvous. And this will enable you to actually get closer and do the, the final docking. Does it have cameras? Will you actually be able to see the debris or, or is it sensing that, that it's there? No, absolutely. We, we have uh, two cameras on board, so we will be able to see the actual debris. Part of uh, future missions is quite important is doing an inspection. So as you get closer, you actually do a fly around around the object just to check that uh, there's no damage, just to make sure the operator's happy with everything before you go in for the final rendezvous. So it's definitely a very important part of future missions. And yeah, we have cameras on board so you can see that. Is there a concern, though, with this sort of technology that someone... uh a country, for example, could develop technology to remove another country's satellites from space. I mean, obviously, this is not something you're going to be doing, but the the potential is there, isn't it? So this is what's known as dual-use technologies, in that you could develop something that has civil uses, but also could be used um, for um, uh, aggressive uses as well. now, it's, it's very important, and as part of our licensing process we go through with the UK Space Agency, uh, that we show transparency in what we're doing. So we make it very clear to a lot of entities what we're doing beforehand. And from the ground, you can always track where we are. So it's, it's quite clear we're not going after somebody else's um, satellite or anything. So, yes, transparency is a really big part of this and confidence building measures between countries. So, you know, I was at the UN last year uh, briefing them on what Astroscale is doing and it's, it's events like this and through other policy discussions that we inform various other countries um, about what we're doing and make it clear that we're not working on military products effectively. Jason Forshaw from Astroscale. Meanwhile, the UK Space Agency set aside up to £1 million to come up with new ways to track the 900,000 or so pieces of space debris in orbit or find better ways of making use of existing tracking data. The agency's head of space surveillance and tracking, Jacob Gear. Tell me why it's important. I mean, there's both the risk case. So we want to avoid collisions happening in space because that would be a negative to our industry and our services. But also there is a growth opportunity here. So low Earth orbit is is an orbit where we see several different new types of missions coming forward in the next few years. In-orbit servicing, debris removal, potentially orbital assembly and, and other such things, all happening in low Earth orbit, as well as just the pure science and exploration things we do. Each of those mission types will require a good knowledge of where things are in space, how to grow sustainably and how to do new business types safely as well. And that's really why we think there's an economic opportunity to be had here, increasing the UK's ability in this place now. Nevertheless, this has got to be, it's a global problem. It's got to be a global solution, hasn't it? This has got to involve international cooperation and sharing data so everyone knows where everything is. That's the end point a lot of people would like to reach. At the moment, the the UK is very strong in uh, international forums like the UN Committee on uh, Peaceful Uses of Outer Space or the Interagency Debris Committee, or IADC, uh, where the UK has been a key voice in advocating for new guidelines, new norms of behaviour to make space more sustainable. What we want to do now is increase our capabilities as a country to to track debris, to warn of collisions, and every nation needs to have their own capabilities to bring to that party. This is part of what the UK is aiming to bring. So the question is, I suppose, if you don't do this, and if we don't have debris removal missions, if we don't have improved surveillance, what's going to happen? So the issue is here the, the growing congestion in space. So there are more and more satellites reaching space now than ever before. And if you look at the forecasts for the number of launches over the next five, ten years, that number of satellites in space would increase dramatically as well. I mean, to think just of SpaceX, which in, a, in the last few months has put several hundred satellites into space as part of their Starlink constellation. So we inspect the number of collisions to increase the amount of debris the amount of satellites to increase and if we do nothing now to to either do something about debris by taking it out of space or just increasing our awareness of what's in space to be safer and more sustainable how we operate then we do really i think risk 
the uh, potential for, for orbits becoming unusable, given the amount of satellites into space, that's not a completely unfeasible scenario. Jacob Gear from the UK Space Agency. Obviously, the UK Space Agency has been quite interested because we reported years ago, we went to Airbus and Stevenage and we saw the great demonstration with a harpoon firing at a revolving satellite at the end of what was an old firing range. And then last year they had um, removed debris testing out different technologies i think this would appeal to to the sort of your you know your former career as a a, a children's presenter gareth in terms of it sounds very sort of blue peter crossed with how doesn't it you know whether it, it it's a, absolutely let's think does. of ways you know, to actually it'd, do it'd this be great how how do you clear Earth's orbit of junk now space junk yeah you can hear it can't you let's think about this we're sending up uh, a satellite which is probably going to generate some space junk to get there, isn't it? This is a bit like the spider and the fly. Uh, the lady who swallowed the sp- spider to catch the fly. We're going to create space Not junk really. in it order to clear space there, junk. Would it? It would, um, no, that's the point. I it, mean, that's it would what I was trying it. to get it to. It would sort of... Um, and it takes itself down. You know, or, magnet yeah. on and then come back like with a piggyback. Like with, with that, a that was my point of that question, really, is that, yeah, initially this one will go up. Every bit of it will come back down again with the space debris, but it's only single use. So Every bit of it? Yeah, so that's the, that's the point. Yeah, that's, what the, that's, that's the intention. So ultimately they want to bring lots of pieces down and have it to keep clearing up space. I mean, they wouldn't do this unless there was a, a point of, of clearing up space. And what's also interesting about this, this is a commercial company. So, you know, these other projects a lot of them have been supported by either uk space agency european space agency or national national governments this is a commercial opportunity so they're seeing it as they can sell it to particularly the constellation operators because a lot of these constellation satellites will sit in the same orbit so if one starts drifting out of control it really messes up the whole constellation but it does feel a little bit Austin Powers. Well, I was thinking, and I was thinking this, and this ages me. Space Force, yeah. Well, I was thinking it's partly Space Force. I was also thinking that um, James Bond film, You Only Live Twice, twice. which was the Gemini, wasn't it? Gemini in orbit, and uh, (laughs) it captures them and then brings them back down to Earth. Swallows them. That's that's, that's a great line. Um, What's the great line in that one? Oh, that's the... and uh, you only expect, expect you, you to, to die, die Mr. Bond. That isn't that one? Goldfinger? I'm yeah. not sure. Yeah, no, I was thinking that. No, it's not that, is it? And yeah, it's well, that just has, you only live twice, Mr. Bond, I think, this one. Yeah, so it's probably the clues of the title. <laughs> there's, there's, there's no doubt that space junk is a problem. But how big a problem is it? I always find myself thinking. Because, you know, space isn't called space for any good reason yeah other but we're than in a neighborhood a it's a neighbor i think it's space is huge but the space around the earth we're limited i think that's the point there are only particular orbits particularly these constellations will operate in and they are starting to get clogged and if you have to spend all your time moving your spacecraft around the international space station for example they're moving it has to move you know, regularly to quite avoid often, stuff increasingly yeah. often to keep out of the way of debris and that's obviously taking fuel and energy and time and planning. And what if they miss something? So, you know, that's the idea with the space station, but also it's similar with, with satellites. If you miss something, it gets hit by a bit of space debris, you've lost your satellite and you've probably created more space debris. I guess it's uh, a bit like the ocean. You know, great swathes of the Earth's oceans are pretty clear. But there are sections on planet Earth where currents drive plastic largely you know really floaty stuff so it accumulates in one spot there was a very famous story i think we told on how to many years ago about how um something like eleven thousand yellow plastic ducks were dumped somewhere in the indian ocean and stayed together and found all their way to somewhere else on the planet i can't quite remember the details but i would imagine there are key orbits where there is more junk than other but i also think these are Objects moving uh, very quickly, and they're going to be very, very, very hard to recover. We we should allocate part of the ISS 
to cleaning up its own orbit. There should be a great scoop at one side of the ISS that collects anything that's in the way and recycles it and reuse it. Because we spent a lot of money getting all that stuff up there. That is valuable material. Don't burn it up or throw it back to Earth. Reuse, recycle, reclaim. This is the Space Boffins podcast. Our guest is Gareth Jones. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. You can find us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, goodness knows what else, not WhatsApp, some, I don't know, some other thingy. I don't think you can be, you can't, be, can't on be on WhatsApp. WhatsApp. I'm sounding like a boomer, aren't I? This is terrible. <laughs> uh, Gareth Jones is with us. Um, Gareth, um, you're, you've been in Wales, you're from Wales. That sounds like an accusation, uh, doesn't yes. it? <laughs> Where were you on the night of the 10th? You didn't break lockdown, but you've been filming, haven't you, for an astronomy programme? Yes, indeed. Um, Even though, I mean, you know me well enough to know I'm I'm born and bred in Wales, but I haven't lived there since 1981. However, I am a a fluent Welsh speaker, uh, a passionate space head. So I was invited to uh, present um, an astronomy programme through the medium of uh, the Welsh language, a uh, language I grew up speaking, for S Pedwarek, that's S4C in Welsh, which stands for Channel 4 Wales, S Pedwarek. And uh, yeah, I spent the last week allowed into Wales. I had a key worker uh, letter saying that I was a key worker for a public service broadcaster. So I was allowed to travel and go and interview people and make some features essentially about the Welsh connections with space or on the occasion of the three people I was talking about, Welsh connections with the moon which there are some very strong connections which uh i don't know if i should spill the beans no keep it keep it i think i think it's definitely something we should have you on for a future podcast and when does this go out gareth it is a live show in just a couple of weeks time on the shortest night of the year would you believe a live (laughs) astronomy program it's on it's it's called Gwilior Ser and View, Watching the Stars Live. And we'll be doing live astronomy from about 11 o'clock at night, or 10.30, I think, at night, on Channel 4 Wales. And my films feature in that programme, June the 20th. Brilliant, brilliant. And uh, before we go on to our, uh, our next second astronaut in the, uh, in, in the podcast, um, I just wanted to say thank you very much to Dr. Kevin Waite, who is in Scotland, in Ayrshire, sent us a really lovely email. And if you want to email us, it's info at boffymedia.co.uk, saying how much he'd enjoyed the Al Warden special. That for the first time, actually, we've been doing this podcast now for nine years. It'll be 10 years next year. And uh, we actually, rather than do them every month, we did a, a, an extra one. Richard put it together. It must be nice to know that it was all appreciated with those interviews with Al Warden. And he also mentioned about, obviously, there was a stamp uh, issue with, with Al Warden. And he, he's obviously listened to the podcast often enough and knows that I'm slightly obsessed with space stamps. And he suggested doing a future podcast, or at least some part of it, mentioning about space stamps or postal covers. And I thought, what a brilliant idea. So we will do something. Thing, um, in a future podcast, possibly August, I think, not just maybe Space Stamps, but because I really like um, the design of uh, Mission Patches, is getting somebody to talk um, to us. And I've already got someone who said yes, but uh, we might have a few more as well um, to talk about the design of Mission Patches. So that full, full nerd. Full, full, yeah, full on Space Geek stuff there to look forward to. Now, you may remember that in April we celebrated Hubble's 30th anniversary and featured this particular NASA astronaut. Hello, uh, I'm Dr. Kathy Sullivan, oceanographer turned astronaut, first American woman to walk in space and proud member of the shuttle crew that put the Hubble Space Telescope into orbit in 1990. And Kathy's career as an oceanographer was why she was in the news recently, you probably heard, because she became the first woman to visit the lowest point in the Earth's ocean when she reached the bottom of Challenger Deep, which when I first read that, I had to read that sort of several times because it just sort of sounds like a, a shuttle name, Challenger Deep, Challenger Deep. But it's actually considered the deepest point in the Earth's oceans within the Mariana Trench in the Pacific, and it's almost seven miles below 
um, sea level, 11,000 metres. So it's amazing considering she's gone from space right to the uh, bottom of the ocean. Now, on that April podcast, um, you may remember, Cathy talked us through the deployment of the Hubble telescope. And we promised that we'd feature more of that interview in the future. So this is it. Here she is. This time she's talking about what she's most proud of during her astronaut career. And it's during the years before the space telescope was deployed, the mission that she was a part of, when she was working with Bruce McCandless and Team Hubble, because their job was to ensure that the space telescope could be repaired in orbit. We started on a good platform because the engineers that had designed Hubble and its layout had really done a good job of thinking ahead. I mean, let's not let's not bury a piece that might have to be changed deep inside where it's hard to get at. Uh, almost let's build almost a kitchen cabinet kind of arrangement. You can open a cabinet door, clusters of things are there. But the bit that kept getting deferred and pushed down the road uh, that Bruce and I, with our engineer colleagues, had to work on is. Well, exactly what tools does it take to get all those things, to open the doors, to release the connectors, to undo the bolts, uh, and then what we would call support equipment. So I've got one of the old bits out, uh, but there's only two of us out here. So, you know, where do I stash this for a while while I get the other one in? How do you do all that choreography? Uh, how, how have you carried the new bits into orbit and kept them safe while you're doing that? So that was really what we got to work on for the five years that we were involved with Hubble before deployment, is let's be sure, number one, number one we've thought about every possible repair and replacement task, and we're positive we've got the inventory of every wrench and every torque limiter and every clamp and visors. Um, let's be sure we've tested all of those on the telescope, so we've taken, we've taken all the risk away that one of them might not fit. Uh, and that might sound like a very trivial point, but in the years leading up to our assignment, you know, NASA had sort of stubbed its toe on a couple of on-orbit satellite repair and retrieve missions because of tiny little discrepancies in the way the engineers thought the satellite was because of the engineering drawings they had in front of them and what the real satellite was. So we, we were really determined to never let that kind of a gotcha crop up on Hubble. Um, you know, it, it was fascinating work because these are not just go pick up a tool and carry it around. There were loads and loads of examples of having to invent, well, how do you actually do that in a spacesuit? Well, we need sort of a wrench, but it's got to be different with these ways and that ways. Some very clever tool designs, a very clever, a few very clever adjustments to Hubble itself that made some very difficult repairs actually feasible. Was there something that might have seemed so obvious and so simple that hadn't been thought of? You know, I think in the how could you not have thought of this category, uh, the one that really comes to mind to me was not one that was so simple you'd wonder how it could be missed. It was one that was so absolutely critical and core to Hubble, but really difficult. And so it, it hadn't been thought of because it, it, this is the big electronics box that every single bit of electronic signal goes through. And so the engineers building Hubble... Uh, in their mind, this can never be powered down. It's always going to have to have electricity flowing through it. And that means no one can ever work on it. But it, it was a large box, the better part of three feet top to bottom and, I don't know, eight inches thick and a couple of feet wide. And it barely fit in its kitchen cabinet, if you will. And it had 36 huge stiff connectors coming out one side. And that one side was, of course, the one that you almost couldn't reach or see at all. And so we're looking at everything on Hubble, and we come to this one, and the engineers are saying, no, no, never mind, you don't even need to bother with that, because no one's ever going to, that will never happen, no one ever can. And I looked at that and thought, you know, if one little electrical circuit in that box is the only thing standing between Hubble dying and Hubble living, I know some astronaut's going to end up here confronting that and try, taking a shot at finding a way to fix it. So we had that argument all bunnied up in our clean room suits right before the telescope. And I fought that fight with that engineer and said, look, someone's going to end up doing this, so you better help us figure out now, while your expertise is here, what we can do. Because right now this is just flat, totally impossible. You can barely do it on the ground. No spacewalker could ever do it. And some poor soul is going to end up trying. So let's make this a little better. And we actually made a major modification to that box, and how it was fitted into the telescope. And sure enough, on the fourth 
servicing mission, uh, it was problems in that box that had Hubble at risk, and astronauts removed and replaced the box that could never be powered down, it could never be removed and replaced. They removed and replaced. And these key modifications that we made, uh, as I said, when I looked at it that day, it was categorically impossible. And our changes didn't make it easy, but they, I like to say they moved it from completely impossible to only horrendously difficult. The Hubble repair tasks on the spacewalks that were done, uh, they're, they're very, very, very complex. I, I'm tr- literally thousands of fasteners and bolts and connectors and thou- tens of thousands of miles of wiring, very complex circuitry. So any task, you know, take this box out and put a new one in. It's complicated choreography. You've got a, a pallet, a carrier that's got the new bits of stuff on it. You've got to grab Hubble out of the sky set it on this servicing cradle, use the shuttle's robotic arm to move an astronaut around like a cherry picker. And, and the sequence of steps is usually, it's very critical you get it right. Um, is the, are all the electrical circuits powered down? You know, we don't want to be electrocuting people. Is everybody on the ground ready? Um, we had worked out already before launch, you know, for each box, you know, you would do these steps open the door, undo this bolt, then that connector, then this other bolt. All of that uh, particulars had been sorted out because we still had the engineers that had built it talking with us. So if there were any little subtleties in which way around you need to do this, before we put it in orbit was the time to capture those subtleties. But then you've got to carry them out just so. And little factors like space is a very odd environment from a temperature point of view. So you've got to keep the new electronics in a tightly controlled temperature range, and if you take too long to get the old one out and change it, it'll get too cold. So the tempo of the task also had to sort of stay on time. So, you know, it's, um, I, don't, I don't know whether to cite the most elegant and complex ballet you've ever seen or the most complicated sporting play you've ever seen that had to all execute just so. But it's, it's of that ilk but on steroids to successfully do a Hubble repair spacewalk. Former NASA astronaut and oceanographer Dr. Kathy Sullivan. And you can read more about her incredible insights in her book, Handprints on Hubble. Now, uh, Gareth, last time you were on the podcast, it was quite a long time ago, actually. It was quite a few years. And we were uh, recording rather than, you know, social isolation lockdown. We're in our living room again. We were actually in a proper studio in London. We had your lovely friend. Anna Marie came and sang vocals with Yeah, who's sadly no longer with us. Um, No, unfortunately, she's gone to the heavens. She's gone to the heavens. Lovely, lovely, lovely woman. And you were singing uh, an Apollo song, if I recall. uh, Uh, Live on the podcast. You're a musician. You've spent most of the last summer touring with the Alarm in the States, haven't you? Uh, yeah, I, w- I was there essentially as their MC on stage. The Alarm are a band from North Wales I've been connected to for, uh, I don't know, nearly 40 years. Uh, and I went out to introduce them on stage in a, a package of three bands and make a documentary about it, a series of podcasts. But I did end up playing with them on stage during the encore most night where I was invited up on stage to, to play bass or, or play guitar. And uh, so, yeah, I, I was playing. But I, I can only write songs about things I'm passionate about. So I've got a car podcast, Gareth Jones on Speed. I write loads of songs for that about cars. But because I'm a space nurse, I, I, I tend to write songs about space stuff as well. That song, Don't Get Me Wrong, was about the uh, the Apollo program, inspired by something that... Uh, uh, Alan Shepard once said about sitting on the top of a uh, a rocket which is built by the lowest bidder on a government contract. How would you feel, you know? Uh, but I, I, I also love um, the Soviet space program. So I wrote a song about Lunokhod, the two Soviet rovers which uh, wandered around on the lunar surface in the 70s. I love them. It, it's such an epically sad story because... They were sort of left there to die when their batteries died on the moon and so many rovers are just forgotten about. Uh, so I wrote this song in the style of Craftwork, uh, in my case, Kraftwurst, for uh, copyright reasons, um, all about Lunacon. So I would imagine that sort of thing that Kraftwerk themselves might have written. It is fantastic. Um, I'm going to play a bit. Let's play a bit now.
It's funny, we, we actually saw Kraftwerk um, last summer at the Blue Dot Festival. And do you know what? That was just like being there. It was. You've done a video as well. I think your, your video, Gareth, is awesome. It's absolutely Thank awesome. Thank you. Oh, well, I actually play all four members of Kraftwerk myself. And I shot it with a homemade chroma key, you know, blue screen studio, colour separation overlay, right here behind me in my living room in North London. I suspended a bit of green cloth from the dado rail and uh, dressed in four slightly different ways, because that's the trouble with craft work. They all dress identically. So I, I, I subtly changed these four outfits to make it appear as if I was the four members of the band. Uh, I, 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 Realising an ambition, it was a beautiful thing. I must admit, I've got to say, I do like the fact that um, you've been do- using these sort of three months of lockdown in the UK to be creative and, and, and make a Kraftworks sort of, cra- sorry, Kraftversed space song because I also use my creativity in that I, but not quite on your level, but I repainted our patio wall which was covered in algae basically and various bits of moss and stuff and crud and it's now a space wall with planets a gas giant uh two moons and it's all at daytime and uh i have put pictures of this on i think i've put them on the space boffins already but if i haven't then uh i i will definitely uh put them up again so you can see it so your video for that it's on youtube it is. Uh, it, I, it's not available. Maybe I'll make it available on its own so it's easy to find. But at the moment, it's part of one of my lockdown live streams. Um, during the lockdown period, every Friday night for about an hour, I uh, I did a live stream from my living room. And it's in one of the episodes of my lockdown live streams. I'm just going live right now to my live stream to try and find out which one it was in. Well, surely people should just find out for themselves and just watch all your live streams because they must have been fantastic. They, they were lots of fun for me. Uh, I, I hope they were uh, as much fun for people watching at home because I tended to talk about things I was passionate about, you know, space, Slade, Wales, Star Trek, in that order. I can tell you it is, in fact, in episode... Six lockdown live stream episode six featuring Kraftverse. I think it was actually. I'm checking it now. Yes, yeah, I do actually talk about some my space stuff in there and how I met Alexei Leonov. Yes, definitely episode six. Brilliant. Well, Gareth Jones, thank you very much for joining us, and it's uh, lovely to have you on after after a, a little gap of a couple of years. But so glad you could bring music back to us as well, space music. <laughs> And that's the June edition of Space Boffins. We're supported by the UK Space Agency and we're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. Do follow us on social media. You can get in touch with us via email, info at boffinmedia.co.uk. And thanks for listening.